Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to see God the Word incarnate this morning. Uh, we're going to look at verses 10 through 14, although verse 14 could probably be five sermons on its own. Uh, but I do think one commentator points out the contrast, the reception of the word in verses 10 through 13, and the significance of the word, and how wicked truly man is to reject the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. So we are going to look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. We'll look at the significance further uh, next week in verses 15 through 18. Uh, but I will read the whole prologue, so verses 1 through 18, to set the context. We'll begin reading at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen. Well, let us pray. O oh, Lord our God, we know that we need your Spirit as we come and consider this wonderful and blessed mystery, this miracle of miracles, how the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The one who is God takes on a human nature, but he does not stop being God. And we're thankful that now he is the God-man. And we are thankful that he is like us in every way, yet without sin. Thank that he was he became body and soul, and we are thankful he had a reasonable soul in a human body. He truly is uh, uh, of the all the essential uh, properties and common infirmities he has, yet still without sin. We are thankful that we have such a savior and champion. We know that we are undeserving of your goodness and your condescension in this way, and we know that even in heaven we shall not see you in your essence, but we have not believed on Christ here today. They would. They would believe upon him. They would not reject this one, but they would look to him for life everlasting. So thank you for all you do. Thank you for your mercy and grace. We ask you, be with us by your spirit. Give us illumination. Give us a better understanding. But as we have a better understanding, may it help us to worship you all the more. And may it help us to live a godly life all the more. We know we need your help and spirit to do this. So be with us now by your spirit. We pray that you be glorified in all things, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the incarnation is called the miracle of miracles for a reason, and John spends a lot of time unpacking the significance of the fact that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. We see that the word is God, 
in, in verse 1, and then we come to the significance where John is driving uh, in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. There's a miracle that the one who created the world is the one who assumed a human nature. And the reason he does this is because we are deserving of infinite punishment. The sins that we have committed against an infinite God, the idea of an infinite punishment really highlights the idea that the punishment fits the crime. And that's why we really need one who is infinite himself. And we also need one to be man because it is man who sinned against God. And this is where we see the infinite wisdom of God, that it was God, the Son, who takes on a human nature. He does so for us. He does so for the salvation of sinners. Now, we know man's rejection of the Creator is heinous, but now we see men rejecting the Savior. It truly shows the depravity of man. It truly shows that salvation really is a supernatural work, that the Son and the accomplishment would take on a human nature. That is supernatural. But that man would have eyes to see and ears to hear. That is also a supernatural work of God. One must be born again. And John's purpose for writing is that many would believe upon his name. We're not supposed to comprehend this idea of the mystery of the hypostatic union, but we believe it to be true. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that he is fully God. We believe that he is fully man. And we believe that in him there is life everlasting. That is why John writes these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. And so he uses all this high and lofty language to put Christ in his place, to help us to recognize who he is and what he has done, that we might believe and live in the word. And the problem is very clear with what we see in verses 10 through 13. That problem is rejecting the word, rejecting God. Creatures who reject the creator. Man has sought out his own devices. Man has worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We also see sinners who reject the Savior, Jews and Old Covenant Israel. They rejected the types and shadows that pointed to Christ. We see Jews in the time of Jesus. They reject the Messiah who has come. Sinners who won't believe on his name and this rejection will lead to this everlasting punishment. That's why we need the accomplishment. That's why we need supernatural work. That's why we need... Uh, the work of the Spirit to help us to see who this Christ, who this Word truly is. And so in John 1, verses 10 through 14, John the Evangelist continues his prologue by showing the reception and significance of the Incarnation. And in reality, the next two weeks, uh, verses 14 through 18, deal with the significance. But we'll start with the reception, and then we are going to see the significance of it. And those could be my points Reception, verses 10 through 13, and significance, verse 14. But the points I actually have written down are the true word rejected, verses 10 through 13, and then we see the true word who dwells. So the true word rejected and the true word who tabernacles among us. So the reception, uh, significance, or the true word rejected and the true word tabernacling with his people. So let's first look at the true word rejected in verses 10 through 13. There'll be some reception as well, but uh, the thing to point out is the rejection of him. But context is important. Last time we saw how John the Baptist is not the word. That was John's purpose for including him here and mentioning him here in verses 6 through 9. He wants to highlight who the true light is. 
There are many good men who came before, many prophets, many good kings, some good kings, a lot of bad kings, uh, but they were not the Messiah. They were not the one promised. They were not the light. Christ is the one who is the true light. And so we begin the uh, start of the mission of the word. John the Baptist is not the word, but he comes to bear witness about the word. He prepares the way of the Lord. He prepares the way for the reception uh, of the one who is the word. And so we see that Christ then is the true light. He gives light to every man coming into the world. He gives light as God in his general revelation of all things. We see his light as the light of the world to further highlight where salvation lies, that special revelation. He is the light of general revelation and he is the light of special revelation as well. And so John continues this, John the evangelist continues this into verse 10. He's talked about how Jesus, the word, really is God. He's highlighting that he is God in his essence. And he's also, he does things that only God can do. Only God can create. And the word is the one who creates. And so he continues to speak about this, I believe, in verse 10. But also to highlight further the reception of him as God or the rejection of him as God. So in verse 10, we see how the word is rejected as the creator. And so we see in verse 10, he was in the world. I think words are important. Hopefully you think words are important as well. But the word was is referring to God the Son as creator. God the Son in his essence. There's a contrast here between the word was and the word came. And the word was goes with what we see in verses 1 through 5. So he was in the world. Not talking about the incarnation just yet. But talking about the one who was in the world invisibly as God. The one who is equal to the Father. The one who is co-equal with Father Father and the spirit. So we see him as the creator of the world. And so Ryle says, Christ was in the world invisibly. Long before he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was there from the very beginning, ruling, ordering, and governing the whole creation. By him, all things are held together. He gave to all life and breath, rain from heaven and fruitful seasons. By him, kings reigned and nations were increased or diminished. Yet men knew him not and honored him not. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Well may the natural heart be called wicked. So he is the creator and we see his effect. He was in the world. He was the one who was eternal before the world, the one working in the world. The world was made through him, highlighting again this, the one who is the creator, driving to the point where he says, and the world did not know him. He is the one who made all things and the world did not know him. Now, world can have different meanings in John's gospel. It can refer to the whole world. It can refer to Jew-Gentile distinction. It can have this ethic, uh, ethical understanding, this sinfulness. Certainly, all those things are in play. The idea he's highlighting here is all men, Jew and Gentile, have rejected him. All men have turned from the creator. God made man upright, but he sought out his own devices. We see that all man, Romans 1 and 2 and 3, all highlight the universal wickedness of man. There is no distinction. Sin does not discriminate. You have sinned against God most high. You've sinned against the creator. And as such, we're deserving of everlasting damnation. It teaches us the total depravity of man. teaches us the total inability of man. Man sought out, uh, God made man upright, but he sought out his own 
devices. God made man good. As I've said many times, when God made Adam, he could have just said, just serve me. You just need to serve me because I am the creator and you are the creature. I am the one who made you. You just need to serve me. But even then, what does he do? He says, here, here's a garden. Here, you're lonely, Adam. Here's a suitable helper for you. Hey, Adam, if you just don't eat from this one tree, I will give you eternal life. You can walk with me. There's everlasting bliss and happiness. And what does Adam do? He sins. He brings sorrow. He brings misery. And us all sinning in him. And we would have done the same thing. We would have eaten from that tree if Adam had not. But the creator is rejected. He was in the world as the creator. The world was made through him. He made all things. It is his creation. We see the wickedness and the world did not know him. Man has rejected him as the creator. That's why we need a Messiah. But even then, the Messiah is rejected. So I think we do transition from the word as creator to the word as Messiah, the incarnation, verse 11. He came. Now, there's several different meanings or several different ways to take this. Some talk about the coming in verse 11. Some men I highly respect talk about it as Christ prior to the incarnation during his time with Israel, appearing to them in the types and shadows. I do not think that is what is going on. The word came parallels with John the Baptist, verse 7. This man came. John the Baptist has a mission. It's to prepare the way of the Lord. And the word who becomes incarnate has a mission as well. So I do think the idea of the word coming, he came to his own, talks about the Lord, talks about his incarnation, talking about the word becoming flesh, and where is his ministry start? John the Baptist starts with Israel. Jesus' ministry starts with Israel, and Jesus continues to do and to teach. Uh, the book of Acts says that. Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he continues to do and to teach by way of the Spirit as he spreads his gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, what John is doing what Jesus does, has done in his coming, is salvation isn't just for Israel, but it starts with Israel. The Jew first and then the Greek. And even as we're going to see, he's severing this idea that Israel, just because of their ethnic descent, that they are the children of God. So he comes to his own. He comes to, uh, he comes to Israel first. He comes into this world. He came to his own. I do think, again, starts with Israel and uh, eventually is a paradigm for any who do not reject. If they do not reject, then they shall be outside the camp. So, uh, ethnic descent is irrelevant. So he comes to his own. He comes to Israel first. And what happens? We see his own did not receive him. Old covenant Israel rejected God. Old covenant Israel violated the terms of that covenant. The old covenant was not sufficient to save and once again, for, but nonetheless, Israel had the oracles, they had the prophecies, they had the promises of the Messiah, and here the Messiah has come. And what happens? They reject him. It shows that they have always been a stiff-necked people. Israel's heinous rejection is further magnified by the prologue of John. The one who is God and the one who is the Messiah has come. This one who is the word. And we see that Israel has rejected. They had the law and the prophets. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus clashes with the Jews. Throughout all the gospels, Jesus clashes with the Jews because ethnic descent is irrelevant. Here he is, and they reject him. Here is the Messiah. Here is the Savior, and they 
reject him. It's a paradigm for all who, uh, who do not re- uh, believe on Christ, who do not receive him and recognize who he is. So there is this rejection, rejection as creator and rejection as savior. If you do not believe on Christ and you've heard that gospel and you reject him as savior, you will be damned forever. But you've heard the gospel. You've heard the truth. You'll be worse off. Jesus says that the towns that heard him will be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to know why? Because Jesus came. Jesus was there. Jesus was in that place. And for those that hear the gospel and reject it, heinous, vile, wicked, shows how vile and awful man truly is. That's why the reception needs to be a supernatural work. That's why, as John 3 says, it needs, one needs to be born of God. It's a work of God that he does in us. And even as we see in verses 12 and 13, it is a work that God does. But nonetheless, there can be reception of him, this receiving this gift that he has given. Verse 12, but as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Those who believe upon his name. And there is this connection with the word receiving. There's similar cognates or similar words in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not receive it. We see it again. Uh, In verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But there are some who do. And notice it's a gift to be received. It's not a work to be done. You receive it. Here is Christ. That's what faith is. It's receiving that gift. Faith is a gift, but nonetheless, it's receiving what Christ has done for us. Here is salvation. Here is life in him. Receive this gift. And notice the instrument, the reception, what we receive, the benefits that come. Uh, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. That's why John writes that you might believe in his name. That's why we preach the gospel, that you might believe on his name. That's why we have people who come and gather who have believed on his name and can be encouraged by the benefits that are found in him. Certainly for Old Covenant Israel, the Old Covenant saints, there were those who believed upon his name. It's the same promises, Hebrews chapter 11. The people looked for the same promises. It's the same Christ. It's Christ provisionally, and we have Christ who has come. And so, they rece- and so whoever receives him, whether Jew or Gentile, this incarnation is going to have worldwide implications. Whoever believes on his name, they shall have life in him. And look at the benefits that we receive. Or uh, we have adoption. He gave the right to become the children of God. Provisionally and definitively. Yes, Old Covenant Israel were the children in an Old Covenant sense But there were people under the Old Covenant who were part of the Old Covenant provisionally in a New Covenant sense. What I mean by that is the Old Covenant never saves. Salvation is never held out in the Old Covenant. Salvation is always by virtue of the New Covenant. The New Christ to come, the ratification in his blood. That's why there's types and shadows that point ahead to him. That is where salvation lies. And so Israel was adopted out of every other nation, but there were people within Israel, the remnant, who were adopted in a spiritual sense. They were the children of God forever. And we see that John is making a break with the old covenant by this language. 
you know, we're going to hammer some sort of Christological heresies here. Uh, you're probably hoping for some uplifting stuff and not just hammering heresies, but we have to hammer some heresies in order to be able to see the good stuff as well, to recognize what Christ has done. But notice the reason we need to hit this just a little bit is to highlight the fact that Israel, Jews today, they are not the people of God anymore. Now, I'm not being anti-Semitic when I say that. I don't want people to be killed. I don't want any of that sort of stuff. But my point is, is that Israel is no longer the people of God because they rejected God. And as we see here that John is saying, children of God has an Old Testament significance, but he's applying it in a new covenant way. They are called the children of God in Deuteronomy 14. They are called the firstborn in Exodus chapter 4. But now we, now the church, as John says in 1 John, we now are the children of God. And so whoever believes on Christ is part of the new Israel in the church of Christ. Christ is the true Israel. Israel is a type of Christ. Israel is a type of the church. And for whoever believes, they are then part of that church. So what do we do for Jews? The same thing we do for Gentiles. Believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon Christ and you shall be part of the people of God. You shall be brought into the new covenant in the new covenant fold and you shall have life everlasting. As many as received him, to them he gave the right. This is an adoption. The right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. That's how you are a child of God. Have you believed on his name? Have you believed on Christ Jesus? That is how one is a child of God. But notice it is a supernatural work that is done. So all he's saying here, and he continues this in verse 13, ethnic descent is irrelevant. Faith is. Ethnic descent is irrelevant, even for children of believing parents. Children must believe for themselves. We preach the gospel to the children. And so we see in verse 13, it's not an ant, just an anti-Arminian text. I mean, it is, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. I mean, it does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but God who has mercy. Man in his natural state cannot save himself. We need to be changed. We need a work of the spirit. It is monergistic. It's one way. It's what God does. Not of blood, nor of the flesh or the will of man. The Arminian stuff we deal with, the nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man. I mean, both of those uh, terms are highlighting it's not based on man's desire. Because man's desire in a sinful state is what? Sin. Man's desire in a sinful state is love of self. That's why the carnal mind is enmity against God's law. It does not submit to it, nor can it. Total depravity and total inability. But we also see that it's not based upon blood, not based upon ethnic descent, not of blood. That would have been hard for a Jew to hear. Not of blood? Are you kidding me? It's not based upon ethnic descent. And remember the Jews get their bee in a bonnet when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, he drives it home in that passage. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your trespasses and sins. Jesus is not afraid to offend people, is he? He's not afraid to throw down. He's not afraid to tell the truth because he is the word. So it is not of blood. So again, that would have been hard for a Jew, but it's also hard for parents sometimes in certain circles. My brother and I love my kids. I love my children, but I don't presume that they are saved because I believe I'm saved. 
I want to preach them the gospel. I still catechize. They have a head start. Those things are good. Uh, but they're not baptized because they're part of the covenant community. They should be baptized upon profession of faith. That's what it should be. Because salvation, the right to become the children of God, we see the outworking of it. It is through faith in time and space. But what precedes faith is regeneration. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is a supernatural work in the hearts and lives of sinners, the hearts and lives of the elect in time and space that we might be called the children of God. And brethren, that is a great privilege, isn't it? That is the application. I mean, the main application is receive Christ. If you've not believed upon Christ, believe upon him and you shall be saved. Believe that he lived, died, and rose again. You shall have life everlasting. And if you have believed upon him, know this, that you are a child of God. We receive adoption. Faith is that instrument. We either accept Christ or reject Christ. But if we accept him, we are called the children of God. The source is God's supernatural work. The grounds is the work of the elder brother, the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us to die on our behalf. And the benefit is what? Communion. Communion with God. That is what was severed. That was what was lost with the first Adam sinning against God, that blessed life in him, that intimacy and everlasting inheritance. But now we have that. We have that through Christ Jesus. God is our father. We call upon him, our father who art in heaven. We can call upon him wherever we are. Sometimes we can fall under his fatherly displeasure and he disciplines us because he's a good father. But he's also given us an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, in the heavenly places. And notice it's a gift. Those who receive it, receive Christ, receive the word. Everything is connected to the word. Sometimes we have to point out the heresies to highlight the significance. If one thinks they're a child of God based upon ethnic descent, they are delusional. They need to see where the salvation lies and that lies in Christ Jesus. So have we received? Have we believed upon the savior? Have we looked to the one who is the word. And then notice, as we transition to our second point, what it is we receive. What do we need to believe about him? And so we'll transition from the true word rejected, and now we'll see the true word tabernacling. I don't even know if that's a word or not, but tabernacling uh, highlights the main uh, verse and the main word uh, that we see in verse 14. So I'll just go with it. So we had reception, and now we transition to significance, the true word tabernacling, what it is we receive, the climax of the whole prologue. And notice we come again to the identity of the one who is the word. He just was talking about he uh, in verses 10 through 13, but now we come again to the one who is the word. So the word, the one who we talked about in verses one through five, the one who is the creator, we see that the incarnation then is of equal or greater importance to creation. We need a rebirth. We need a new creation. We need to be part of that new creation. We need a change. And so there is this great mystery that we see with the incarnation. Isn't it a great mystery? It should be a great mystery. If you think you understand it, well, you probably don't understand it as much as you think. I don't understand it as much as I think. We just have to make sure we don't say things about Christ that we shouldn't. And so we are going to do some theology again this morning. Hopefully that you see the significance of the incarnation. It's just not a baby in a manger. It's 
the one who is eternal God, who takes on a human nature. So important things to highlight. We see that he is the, it is the second person. Only the second person takes on a human nature. Not the Father, not the Son. Oh, sorry, not the Holy Spirit, but the Son. Wow, I need to be on it a little bit more this morning. The Son takes on a human nature. Ryle says it needs to be carefully stated. It is just one of those great truths which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. So that's why it's important to read men of old to make sure we don't, you know, say something heretical about our Christ. And let's be honest, in our Christian walk, we've probably all said or thought things heretical about our Savior. We probably haven't meant it maliciously. We probably didn't mean to do it. It's just we were not as well educated as we probably should have been. And that is probably a fault of churches that need to understand more and men like me who need to understand more. And so we see this blessed mystery. It is the word, the one who is with God, the one who is eternal God. We see then it is he, the son, who takes on flesh, who assumes a human nature. Now, flesh is certainly important in John's gospel. It highlights that Jesus took on a human nature, body and soul. He did not take on a human person. When we think about the hypostatic union, it's one who and two what's. The one subject is the son who is, or what he is, is God. And what he is when he takes on the human nature is now also man. And so we see that he is the one who assumes this human nature, but he assumes a human flesh. And the reason flesh is mentioned is certainly to highlight that he comes in weakness. He comes in, in, uh, in, this, uh, in this body, in this lowly state. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, where we see that the one he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation by taking on a human nature. Not a person but a human flesh. And what John is probably combating here is what's called a, the docetic uh, heresy. I used to say docetic. Then I heard someone smarter than me say docetic. So I think I'm going to go with that smarter person uh, than me. But it just taught that he did not actually come in the flesh. He only appeared, only looked like he did. It was just a phantasm. But we really need, as sinful people, we really need the one who is the mediator to be fully man, like us in every way, body and soul. And so it's the infinite wisdom of God that the son would be the one who takes on a human flesh. Gill says, and flesh here signifies not a part of the body, nor the whole body only, but the whole human nature, consisting of a true body and a reasonable soul, and is so called to denote the frailty of it being encompassed with infirmities, though not sinful to show that it was a real human nature, not a phantom or appearance that he assumed. He really did take on a human nature. He really was born of a virgin. He really did grow and increase as a human while remaining unchanged as the one who is God. And it's important to highlight who Jesus is, the, this person of the Son, because there are many problems that arise even again today. You like to think that the same heresies would have been dealt with years ago, but we just keep bringing them back up. And there are problems in modern Calvinistic and Reformed Baptist circles with respect to the Son and what happens when he takes on a human nature uh, in relation to what we see in Philippians chapter 2. When it says he emptied himself, does it mean he changed? 
Does it mean that he emptied himself and stopped using his divine omniscience? Does it mean he stopped being everywhere present? Hopefully you're all shaking your head. You hear that and go, no, that's not what's going on. The emptying that we see in Philippians 2 is the incarnation. But as we know that God in himself, God cannot change. There cannot be change in anyone who is God. His understanding, as the Psalms say, is infinite. That's why we have to do theology. When we see that he is the one who is God, the word was God, we have to comb and go back to the Old Testament and see all the passages that speak about God. And so what is God? God is infinite. God is infinite in his understanding. And so that means that when the son takes on a human nature, he cannot stop being infinite in his understanding. And so we have to highlight then what was true about the nature is true about the person, but we cannot conflate the natures. We cannot enhance the humanity and we cannot diminish the deity. We have to recognize fully God and fully man. So Christ in his human nature does not know the day or the hour. Christ in his divine nature knows the day or the hour. Christ in his human nature does not know the day or the hour, but Christ in his divine nature knows the day or the hour because he is eternal God. If we just read some of the creeds, I'm just going to read a portion of the definition of Chalcedon, again, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. And at the same time, I'm going to say that again, and at the same time. Those two words are important Christologically, aren't they? Same time. Of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin. It is the language of the church father who said the infant wails but is eternal God. That is a great mystery, isn't it? And it should cause us to recognize who our Christ is all the more, the infinite wisdom of God, that this one who is God is the one who takes on a human nature without adding anything to himself, without taking anything away from himself as well. It's one person with two natures, each nature operating according to what it is. One writer says it was in this way that the Son of God came into the world and yet was in the world. For he was there indeed by his essence, power, and presence, but he came by assuming flesh. He was there invisibly, and he came in order to be invisible. He's invisible in his divine nature. He was visible in his human nature. A great mystery. That is why, by the way, the pictures of Jesus violate the second commandment. Because there's one who we are talking about. There's one subject there's one son. And if we only have the human person, A, we have no idea what he actually, or human nature, we have no idea what he looks like. And then B, how can you then make the one who is God and make a picture of it without it being an idol? See why pictures of Jesus need to go away. <laughs> pictures of Jesus need to be removed because they denigrate who the son of God is. Because the way in which we see him but is by faith and the way in which we see him forever will be by sight. He did actually come. So there's this mystery, this blessedness, the one who is the word. He does what? He becomes flesh. And notice what he does. He dwells or tabernacles among us. And so we are really dealing with the significance of who he is. But we also see the significance of the unfolding of redemptive history. And certainly dwelling, tabernacling, 
is very important. Why? Because man has life with God by way of communing with him. Man sinned against God and removed that blessed communion with God. So what does God do in his unfolding of redemptive history? He is saving man. He's reconciling that we might then what? Dwell. And the Old Testament is filled with dwellings. Exodus chapter 40, we see that the spirit descends upon the tabernacle. Second Kings talks about, or sorry, First Kings talks about the spirit descending upon the temple after Solomon builds it. And then we see, fine, then we see when Israel sins, we see the glory of the temple departing. And now we have the one who comes in fullness. And we see, as Jesus says, who is the temple? He's the temple. His body is the temple. He is the one in whom there is dwelling. And there's so many references to dwelling in the book of Revelation to highlight how it is that we dwell with God and how it is that we are with him in his kingdom forever. Certainly, Exodus 37, or sorry, Exodus, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 43, but Ezekiel 37, 27 says, talking about that last day with the one kingdom, one king, Remember when he's prophesying it's after the divided king or after Israel's gone into captivity, but they were divided for a long time. But there is this promise in the latter days, my tabernacle also will be with them. And indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Where is that fulfilled? In Christ. The nations will also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Who is that talking about? Christ Jesus and all those who are his. Whereas we see in Ezekiel 43, talking about the temple and the dwelling place. And he's talking about the end time temple, fulfilled in Christ and fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. And he said to me, the son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name they nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. The king has come who has purified the temple. The king has come who has purified the temple in his body, and it's in him that we dwell. And it's in him that we see the revelation of God. Those other dwellings were veiled, but we can say that this one is less veiled. We see and know God in Christ Jesus. We know God in him as God dwells with us, as the Son in him, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The only way to know God, the only way to dwell with God is in Christ Jesus. So the word becomes flesh. He dwells among us. And notice again, this is that revelation aspect, the seeing, his presence. And the, the apostles, we, now they declare, but we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He explains what this means. And again, person aspect who he is, and then also we see that redemptive historical unfolding. And so we see he is, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. There's a lot of ink spilt in the new, in this uh, lately, or I guess in the past 20, 25 years, probably more than that, about the idea of the eternal generation of the Son. If you've never heard that before, you need to hear it again and again and again. It's highlighting how the Father relates to the Son while both being consubstantial with one another. It highlights the fact that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. How is it that we consider and distinguish between the Father and the Son, yet the Father is God, the Son is God, not in essence, but in person. So this is the procession. We see that the Son is eternally begotten 
of the Father, eternally generated, and eternal is important there. It's not as though he was created, but eternally generated. And so a lot of people like to take this word that we see in verse 14 and in verse 18, the only begotten. I love the New King James translation, only begotten. Other translations like to highlight the uniqueness. And if I may ask, what makes him unique? He is the only begotten of the Father. No one has seen God at any time. Only the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. The only one who is eternal God is the one who takes on a human nature. And only he can then declare who the Father is. Only in him can we then know who God is. The only begotten he has declared him. That's why you want to know the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It highlights that Jesus is God. He has perfect life uh, in himself. He has perfect life with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. He does not need anything. He does not need you and I. We're talking about God in himself here, but then we also see with the becoming flesh, we see God for us. So who he is, how he relates to the Father, but we also see eschatologically, or I guess the unfolding of redemptive history, this glory. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, but the glory of that eschatological light. That's why we read Isaiah 60 to start, because man was in darkness. The child in Isaiah 9, he comes to a dark place and he shines as a light for a reason. Christ is that eschatological light. He is the one who shines. It's how we can have presence with God and how we can have life with God and light with God. That's why in the new heavens and new earth, there's no sun, but who lights it? It is the lamb who lights it. The glory has already come. The shining light has already come, and that is in Christ Jesus. He's shining it now, and he will shine it forever, world without end. But then we see John further explain, as much as he can explain, what this all means. Full of grace and truth, describing certainly God, the Father, but also here the Word, who is full of grace and truth. Certainly we see the glory of God in the transfiguration, but that is not in John's gospel. We see the glory of God in the incarnation, in Christ Jesus. And certainly Exodus 34 is in the background, which we will look at next Lord's Day evening, Lord willing. But last time we saw Exodus 33. And we saw how Israel has always been a stiff-necked people. So how is it that Israel is going to dwell, or God is going to dwell with Israel, this stiff-necked and wretched people? Well, then Moses pleads, and he asks and says, show me your glory. And what happens? We see that the God says, Yahweh says, you cannot see me and live. We cannot see the essence of God and live, but yet God is still pleased to, in a veiled way, proclaim who he is in a way that doesn't blow us up, in a way that doesn't kill us, in a way that protects us. And we see when it is proclaimed, we see what he is the Lord, the Lord God, abounding in goodness and truth, full of mercy and grace. We see here the way in which we see the uh, God, the way in which we dwell with God, the way in which God dwells with us, the name that is proclaimed is in Christ Jesus. And we see even as we go back to Exodus 32 and 33, again, that's the whole golden calf situation, right? The people are dancing around that golden calf. We don't know where Moses went. We'll just dance around this calf instead. And yet God is pleased to be gracious. 
And how much more do we see his grace and mercy in the fact that the one who comes is the one full of grace and truth? Because we're not deserving of grace, and it's in him where there is only the truth. Grace is only used here in John's gospel, and he's driving it back or drawing our attention back to Exodus 34, but also driving to this climax to show who it is and what it is that is revealed, and that it is Christ. You want mercy and grace? Believe upon Christ. You want the truth? Believe upon Christ, and you shall have it. He is gracious. He is good. We see the glory is seen in God's dwelling with man. God's condescension to undeserving people, his presence with us, in that the Son took on a human nature. That's why dwelling with God is such a high privilege, isn't it? That is where our life is. That is where our life lies. Now, in this fallen world, in this present world, we know that we do it in part now. We, we have it, we receive it, we believe upon it. It is by faith now. One day it shall be by sight. That's why we perhaps long for that sight is because we've tasted already and we long to see him fuller. We long to see Christ as he is. We long for that fullness to come in when he comes again because we have tasted already that the Lord is good. And so, brethren, know the goodness of God. Know the gift of God's condescension in that the word becomes flesh. It shows that God really is for his people. God in himself, but God for us. That is what the incarnation is all about. It is about God for us. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Will you receive it? Have you received it? Or will you reject it? Believe upon Christ. Look to him. Here is the revelation of grace and truth as the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we confess that there are things that we spoke of today that we do not comprehend or understand, but we believe it to be true as it is revealed in your word. Thank you for the blessed mystery of the Trinity, but also the blessed mystery of the incarnation and the hypostatic union and what that means for us. Thank you for the accomplishment of the Son who took on a human nature that we might have dwelling with you. He dwelt among us that we might dwell with you. We know that we are undeserving of this dwelling, O Lord, and so often we scoff at it even still in our remaining corruption. We neglect it. We don't pray as we should. We don't come to the Lord's Day uh, gatherings as we ought. We don't partake of the Lord's Supper as we should. But we are thankful that you are the God who is full of grace and truth. And so help us to be reminded Help us to be reminded of Christ and what he has done for us. Help us to be reminded uh, of the Savior and the mystery of his person and the blessedness of his work, that we, your people, might know that we have dwelling with you, that we are called the children of God. Thank you for this blessed privilege that it is. We pray that we would not take it for granted, but would appreciate all that we have in you, appreciate all the benefits that we have because of Christ that have been applied to us by the Spirit. And we know that there are many things that we have thought of today. We ask and pray that we would meditate on these things. We ask and pray that we would contemplate these things. And as we consider these truths, we pray that you'd stir our hearts and help us to honor and glorify you, but help us to do so grounded in that truth and knowing that salvation really is supernatural in the incarnation and in the application as well. So we ask and pray that you would encourage our hearts, uplift us today. We ask and pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please show them their sin. May they not reject the Savior, but may you make them born of God. May you work in them 
and that you might give them new life. So thank you for your work. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you that Christ continues to do and to work even now to draw his people in. And we are thankful that even now Christ is the one who speaks to us, and we're thankful that he is the one we can worship. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.